0: Like, for me, mental illness, I've been blessed in the way that when I read that list on Google and I looked at it... What
1: was in the list?
0: Well, one of the things is is the weight problem, you know, like, people... Look, when I was growing up in Australia, I felt people were more, like, if you had a weight problem or you look a bit fat or you didn't look good in clothes, people were a bit more, like, how do I say it? Um, Judgmental. Yeah, very judgy. And I used to be that, I used to be scared what I wear sometimes, but then... What happened was I left Australia and I learned how to be alone. I learned how to meet new people. So during that time, I went to Hong Kong. I traveled to Asia with my French friend. Then I went to live in France for three months and did nothing and eat a lot of great cheeses and food and drank a lot of beer, but met great people. I'd never been in a country that I didn't understand a language, you know what I mean? It was my first time game, you know?
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host Sarah Ann Macklin. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to give you all a really exciting announcement regarding our first ever podcast live coming to you this December and we really, really hope we can see you all there. If you head to the Be Well Collectors website, you'll be able to find out all the details, but it will be held in the evening on December the 2nd in London. It's going to be a really exciting end and finale to this season, and we really hope we can see you all there. Today's episode I speak to ex Otolenge Chef Scully. He is a brilliant visionary chef with a bold, veg-centric menu that I am a huge fan of, and I have been copious amounts of times to his restaurant in St. James. Food waste is at the heart of many of the dishes he creates, and his innovative, forward-thinking approach surrounding sustainability is one which is illuminated from the moment you walk through the doors of his restaurant. I spoke to Scully in person, funny enough, in the kitchen of the restaurant where we discussed his own mental health within the restaurant industry and what he's learnt personally along his journey. This is the first time Scully has spoken so openly about his own journey and one which was really inspiring to listen to. You'll also get some great cooking tips from this episode at the same time. So I hope you enjoy it. Today I'm joined by Ramal Scully. So welcome to this week's episode. We are currently sat in your basement kitchen aren't we you can call it the dungeon that's what we call it
0: Well, yeah. my gosh we're recording in the dungeon, <laughs> kitchen dungeon. what happens
1: in the dungeon well wow.
0: <laughs> <viny. laughs>
1: well we're sat next to a waffle machine <laughs> and we're perched on just to give everyone a sense of scenery because you don't get this and you listen to a podcast i'm in a puffer jacket because it's yeah. cold we're next to the fridges yeah. which have currently been turned off so mm. i need to make sure that i remember to tell you to turn them on yes, again so now
0: we have a big day tomorrow <laughs>
1: <laughs> we've Good. got four fermenting buckets propping up the microphone it is a real kind of eye for sight recording this podcast so thank you for having us down yeah, here I'm
0: totally totally honored to, to be
1: uh... really really pleased to have you on um being a foodie myself as mm-hmm. well i'm so excited to ask you so many questions regarding you know your food waste mm-hmm. and how you started in the industry so to give everyone kind of a quick trip down memory lane on mm-hmm. scully yeah. you've really drawn in you know your your heritage, your culture, your Mm. upbringing Mm. into the dishes that you create. And I can personally say that from visiting having a delicious dinner here a few weeks ago and when you do walk into your restaurant for anyone who's not been here before you do have like an illuminated wall mm-hmm. of all of these gorgeous jars that you've been working on which is pickling, fermenting and you draw inspiration I know, kind of yeah. daily from this yeah. can you tell everyone just a bit about kind of your, how you grew up and where you grew yeah, up and straight, your heritage definitely, definitely,
0: definitely. Uh, born at 1979 in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia a place called Petaling Jaya On my mother's side, we have a big family, nine aunties, two uncles, all my aunties are great cooks. So I've always been surrounded with great food. Growing up in Malaysia, like, you know, street food is so amazing. Malaysians eat up to, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. So you always got a choice when you go out to eat. You can have Chinese to Malay to Portuguese to, you know, different types of Indian spice food. So I've always been surrounded by great food, and it was really hard to say no when, you know, so you're just constant eating kind of thing, especially with the heat wave out there. So you're constant, like, drinking, like, sugarcane drinks and coconut water. So I've always been blessed. And then on my father's side... This is when it comes a bit like the, the mixed side of me, but my father's Eurasian, Irish and Balinese. So, you know, like for my mother and dad to date that back in those days was kind of like stirring the plot a little bit already, you know. But then my mum's there, so when she just had me, basically she had to go back to London to finish her studying. So um, being a nurse and then she used to come back every year and is basically, you know, bring ideas of cooking as shepherd's pie, you know, a cool roast chicken in a Mark Suspenso casserole um, pot that she has. And she was always talking about it. She has different sizes for different chickens. So like, you know, so my one auntie would be cooking laksa, the other auntie will be cooking a beef run and then mum would be like a casserole pot of lasagna or shepherd's pie. So like even my cousins who used to love the mixed flavours. So we love Western cooking plus with all the Asian flavours. And then during during our time, and mum had a chance to migrate to Australia being a nurse and that. So we did it. I I was probably about 10, 11 years old and my sister was probably 14, 15. So I think it was harder for my sister being a teenage kid to transit to a new country and I I was more excited. You know, it was like a new thing for me. It's definitely scary being an Asian kid walking into a new country and English is number one priority language you have to learn and the personalities you meet, the nationalities you meet too. But then you realise when you're in Australia, you're surrounded like a very massive multicultural nationality people around you. So I, you know, I end up hanging out with a lot of Turkish, Italians and Greeks. And so I start learning about their cultures, about food. And I always intrigued about that, you know, and they will come around and meet my mother and she'll be cooking sambal belacan, and it smells like, like smelly shrimp. They'd be like, what the heck is cooking? I'm like, it smells like someone's dying, you know, like a dead animal. And then I'll be like, look, taste it, because sambal blachan is fermented shrimp paste. You have to roast it, so it gives you like a dead smell of like a dead animal, like I can't explain to you, but when you cook it, it gives you that fragrant flavor and in what in what a good sambal should taste like, you know, that shrimpy part that you like. Like So always surrounded with food, and at one point in my life that my dad is a retired journalist, and my mom being a nurse, and I travel a lot, So I was always surrounded by great stories about them traveling, and I really wanted to go see the world. And I think, you know, being an Australian too, you start meeting a lot of Australians who want to get out. You know, we're stuck in this massive island and we're surrounded with great waters and tropical and that. So we just want to see the rest of the world. And so one of the reasons at that time I was surfing a lot and I wanted to be a marine biologist in my career. And my sister was going to uni that time, and Mum goes, "Look, I can't really afford four of used to go to university, and that, so like, you know, what else do you like doing?" And I said, "Look, I like I love to cook." So. So I gave it a go. But before I did, mum was always like, look, I'm not going to give you money, so you've got to earn your own money. So I used to sell lollies and started working in, as a kitchen porter in, in small little res- local restaurants after school. And then I started knowing, like, you know, spaghetti bolognese free after work. I was like, wow, it's amazing, you know? And then watching the chefs cut the carrots really thin strips and kind of turned me on. And I was like, this is fascinating, you know? So going back to school with home economics, I started getting into, in, in Australia, school about home economics and I went to. We left school at 16. I left school at 16 and you can actually start doing a cooking class, cooking school, TAFE colleges. So the good thing about Australia is that if you do decide to leave school at 16, they have a lot of apprenticeships for you. There was around a lot so, basically started cooking like that you know fell in love with doing part-time work and then seeing what chefs would do and the the banter that goes on in the kitchen and all that was really fun and then I went to straight after school i spent a whole year doing college of just food for five days a week and I just fell in love with it you know and that's how the journey started with food, basically. So wow. I could be a marine biologist slash surfers thing or, you know, like it didn't happen for me.
1: <laughs> I'm really glad that you're not. <laughs> I'm really glad that you went into chefing. because, you know, you have such a visionary I when it comes to food and I have to say that your menu it's not purely vegetarian or vegan you have kind of a real mixture Mm. but it is very veg centric and you did work with Ottolenghe for many years and you were the head chef at Nopi and I remember that you said about when working for him that the one thing that he taught you was that vegetables are number one, yeah. and you really do make vegetables. And I'm not just saying this. Come alive yeah. on that plate; they are bursting with flavor. Even just walking down here, and you know, you showing me those tomatoes mm. and the mm. process you're going through that you are then going to serve them a few days later. It's everything is such a process. It's exactly. a real creative art in a way. It's
0: taking it to the next level. That's why I felt after make, working Gala Otelengi, and you so vegetable focused, and um, one of the things. If you're a true Ottolenghi reader, cookbook reader, you really read his recipes and what he teaches you, he layers the flavours. So from a butternut squash or a simple roasted aubergine can be layered with nuts, a yogurt sauce or something acidity fresh herbs and then a little pickle you know so you you think about it in the five notes of umami you got texture you got the mouthfeel flavor you got that sweetness from the vegetable because you roasted it and then you got textures from the nuts and then the pickle, the acidity that helps you digest you know and I think like when I was learning French cooking and I think it's very important like you want to be that true chef in hardcore kitchens like learn a bit a bit about French cooking because it's the fundamentals of cooking it's the steps that you need to be before I start changing Mornay sauce and making it to a to this and that. you know, it's just the fundamentals of cooking. So that's what the veggies are all about, like, after learning Otolenghi. But my goal was, when we opened Scully's, is saying, Yo time. thanks for opening my eyes to more vegetables but how do I take it to the next level? And then if you look at the past of Asian cooking and what Scandinavian is cooking done has done to the world, like Rene Redzepi, and he's just open your eyes a little bit more about fermenting in a way that it is sounds scary when you see little white foams on, on your, in your jars. Oh, that's not a good thing or a bad thing, but that's how we did in, in the Scully restaurant, just taking it to the next level and just really thinking how we can use the vegetables anyways.
1: We're going to come onto the waste in yeah, a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> i have literally got such a, a list of questions here. Yeah, but I think, like, you really do incorporate the veg. But you also you draw a lot of inspiration on the health side of things. You've got like, I've seen spirulina in some of your mm-hmm. dishes. You mm-hmm. know, fermentation, kimchi, kobe, like all yeah. of these things, which actually have real health benefits mm-hmm. as well within yeah. your food. You know, and that's something that I'm always talking to people about, including more vegetables in their diet, yep. looking at the differences within food diversity, bringing in more fermented foods mm-hmm. for those kind of, pre and prebiotics, yes, and that right. that side of thing it can feel quite scary for the average person to go home and start looking at fermented yeah, totally foods yeah. you know what would you say to these people that actually isn't as scary as you think because starting anything new yeah, yeah. is quite okay, worrying yeah. and if somebody thinks well maybe i do want to draw some inspiration but maybe not to a chef's yeah, standard yeah. how do they start with anything um, like that
0: when i first started like looking at fermenting food and i think stepping stones like it scared the shit out of me too and i think If you look at it now, knowledge is out there. There's definitely a lot of books and knowledge on the internet about starting your slow process. And how I started was salt. And then with the knowledge you can read now, salt brining, it's one of the simple things as a home cook you can do, like having radishes, rocket leaves, certain soft herbs that you can make a salt water brine. So just put water and a little bit of table salt or good cornish or modern salt. Just get a whisk and whisk it in and just taste it. It's like a light when you get drowned in the ocean water, like that little lightness of salt water. And if you ever realize too, if you ever swim in the beach a couple of days, you feel your skin a bit nourish. It's like kind of that salt water that makes wonders to your skin. And that's why I miss like living in London for so many years. I just like just wish to jump in into the ocean just for a few hours, you know. So that helps the chlorophyll, helps the crispiness. It seasons the vegetable, so that's one simple step. And then after I started doing simple things, pickling, you know. And then I realized that I wish I learned that more in French cooking, because in all the years, like, I spent three years in a hardcore French restaurant called Bader's Pavilion. He was a Canadian French. And, you know, I learned a lot about, like, the classic style cooking and flavors, but the only acidity we really used was a little bit of vinegar sometimes. They call it a gastric, that we use that to make the the jus or the sauces that gives you that mouthfeel. But then we didn't use enough because, you know, sometimes we have three, four courses of a good French dinner or lunch. You just feel a bit bloated. You feel a bit heavy, you know. So I started like working for Oteleng and we started thinking lemon juice is so important. You know, when you cook your pan-fried chicken or a piece of fish, fresh lemon juice. Even making a vinaigrette just to cut through, so if you're having like a mashed potato, it's so rich, but then you should have a leafy salad with with a lot of high acidity vinaigrette, so it just helps you digest better, you know? And then when you start traveling to Scandinavian countries, you notice the the, the pickled herrings, the cucumbers, how they make horseradish cream and all that kind of stuff starts thinking, you're making your head that acidity is so important, you know? And I'm working for your time, he loves yogurt. So I sort of make sure I use yogurt, but do it in so many different ways by steaming it, making caramelized yogurt. But then I will have like blackberry gastric. So I will take my French-style cooking by mixing a little bit of leftover red wine, red wine vinegar, sugar. And then after you bring it to boil and reduce it, you add the fresh blackberries. So it gives you that acidity and then sour and fruity. And then you pair it with something like caramelized yogurt, something rich. Then if you want to go to the next level, you put a piece of venison, you know. So that's why I started learning how to balance my food because when you're young, you're cooking, you're learning how to run your section, so how to maintain speed, it was so important coming together as a team you know if you're not outspoken person you're very quiet and service the team will crumble you need to have that yes chef coming 10 minutes are you okay you know like that communication is so important in the kitchen so that's all comes to it but I think the simple steps start out with salt preserving lemons. It's a fun way to do it, and you can't really stuff it up. You know, like <laughs> like you really can't. I hope you can't stuff it up, but I think it's a simple thing to do. If you want to take a next level, salt like gravelacks. You know, like works so great herbs and salt and a little bit of sugar balance things out you know oh my
1: gosh we're making you really hungry <laughs> you are know,
0: well, going to not talk about food we can keep going we need a list we, can, like,
1: <laughs> we literally need a list there's yeah. so many things and yeah. I just love it because as you're talking about it I'm just surrounded by you know so many things such as the, you know the fermenting this is the kobe fridge yeah, so, isn't it
0: it's a massive incubator so we do our pickles or our ferments in there to start it off because it keeps that um really really uh, stable ambient heat temperature sorry so we do a thing called koji. It basically brings spores on rice and barley. So in time, it's a 10-day process, but what it would do, it will make our basis for our misos, our umami paste, we call it. It's like taking, give you an example right now, pumpkins are in season. So I get pumpkins, a rice koji, a little bit of salt and sugar, and I backpack it and I leave it in incubator for about two months. So you're making like an amino pumpkin paste, like a quick pumpkin miso. But if you're at home, guys, you can do that too. Roast your pumpkin, scoop it up in a bowl, buy some white miso from your local uh, Asian shop or Japanese shop and they usually call it shio, shio miso, you know, the white miso. And then miso uh, mixed with the pumpkin and then you can leave it in the fridge or leave it in the jar, a little bit of sugar or salt and you can create a quick pumpkin miso. But if you cook the pumpkin in the pot slowly and then when it gets really like wet, keep reducing it slowly and lower heat. Just before it goes a bit dry, you add the white miso, you know, a little bit of mirin or rice wine vinegar, and you can make your own quick pumpkin miso. And that, you can mix it with your, if you're a vegetarian, you can mix a bit of lentils, make a cool lentil kind of like, you know, pumpkin miso-flavoured burger, little things. We, as a restaurant in Nopi, we used to like, just make it like a nice puree to go with seared scallops, bit of raso hanu, because raso has got that flavour of that roast petals, that cinnamon. So it's like, you know, like mixing a bit of sweet and savory, like what Middle Eastern cooking is all about, you know. So you get how I create things. Like I think in a day it wasn't for my upbringing and I always make sure that I travel a lot, saw a lot of things and that helps your palate, helps you open your mind a little bit more that some countries are eating some crazy stuff that we never thought about eating, you know.
1: Honestly, I think traveling and open up your mind is one of the best inspirations for anything, even cooking, anything and i think that really comes through in your sustainability side of really wanting to work with food waste Mm. and well if we're looking at kind of the hospitality industry and the restaurants you know the uk food service industry produces over one million tons of food waste annually so it's crazy it's It's huge and it's scary and you know, I know that you know you have a really strong dimension at this restaurant where you can see as soon as you walk in, yeah. you're always looking at ways of yeah. reducing that, and it's a really innovative new way which hopefully more restaurants yeah. will take on and will see the amount that they're wasting and the importance of this. Mm-hmm. And what's fantastic is that you're obviously on St James's area, St James Street. Well, of
0: central London. yeah exactly how right do you, how, you, how do you sustain a restaurant as much as you can in where you are yeah. and this
1: is the thing and they pledged haven't they to reduce the food waste a yeah. few restaurants around here yeah. by 25 yeah. percent, and you are one of those restaurants yeah. that yeah. are doing that yeah. you know can you talk me through you know your philosophy behind food waste you know because you are very passionate about it and yeah. i can tell that from the moment i first spoke to you yeah. to to being in this restaurant
0: yeah like i think number one is work with your just your supplies as much as you can i give you an example like a couple years ago like in otolenghi we cut a lot of aubergines like we go through 10 20 boxes per deli you know that's like each box is five kilos so you do your mat every day and you do your mat every month it's a lot of aubergines some suppliers will sell you the aubergine individually wrapped in plastic all right and you kind of like you're going why the heck i've got 20 boxes and i've got 20 all the aubergines in the boxes right so you tell your suppliers you stop doing it or stop buying it and i'm not going to buy it from you so be strict about that so like what I'm trying to say, we've got to have discipline. you got to go look at your supplies, how they bring their stuff in. So now I'm working with Natura closely. They've changed their subject about, we used to get the beautiful Cornish baby herbs in plastic, in blue p- punnets. So now they have recycled boxes, you know, a little thing. So, and the thing with most restaurants is that we want to recycle everything to our bottles, to our cardboard, to our paper. So, when you're doing menus, you know, like, you know, some of these fancy papers cost a pound 50p. You know, do you really need it, guys? Do you need to go and then you can't really recycle the paper. So you need to think about everything you do, everything you buy. It needs to be like good for us in a way. You know, like if you look at London restaurant Silo, they've done it. If you ever listen to him talk, the chef there, and he's so strict about what he gets and what he buys. He His menu is so sustainable in a way that... You don't go there for a steak, you don't go there for a piece of fish, you just go there what he can find is best in the time. So when you're running a city restaurant, You know, you got people out there, they don't really understand that. They want to come here and they want to eat what they want to eat. And they want, you know, so what I've done in the menu, I've written where the dish explains what it is. I share a description to explain you what I have done to the waste because sometimes some customers don't want to listen to guests talking about it. You know, like, you know, like sometimes some guests just want to sit down and dine. They don't want to listen to what the waiter wants to say. So I've done in that process when they're ordering their food, there's a little talk about it saying that our tomatoes we buy it's never the best variety it's the oldest variety. it's the one that's so bruised it's getting a bit like Water's dripping in the box. It gets a bit manky that most chefs don't want to use with it. So instead of throwing away or using it as compost, we buy it and we soak it with a little bit of cider vinegar, demurrage sugar, soy sauce. And then four or five months later, it comes a really great source for our, our Bloody Marys, our cocktails, our tomato salad, which you had. So that's a little stepping stones on that part that we do. Then recently, I didn't realise that the charcoal that we're using, it's nothing like... The one thing is how do you make charcoal? Comes from forests, yeah. You burn wood to make charcoal, or you can do what the guys in Dan Barber is doing in, in the states using bones to recycle the bones or whatever they use to make stocks to to make the charcoal. But you need a, a shitload of bones for that. So I started sustaining out a friend of mine that I know that started this charcoal business called Rittle and Flame, and they're using sustainable forests from Scotland to make their charcoal. And then I noticed that when you burn his charcoal, you use a quite less use less charcoal and it lasts longer and it heats up faster. So that little things help in a business. Helps yes it costs double the price but if you look at it at the end of the year you're buying cheap charcoal by using abundance of it to burn it. But now I'm buying less charcoal, more paying double, but it helps I know in the, the year I'll use more less. You know what I mean? So that's a good start for me now with the charcoal thing that I found out. We comes to meats and Fishes, like you know try to get sustainable fish at all times we work with your suppliers as closely I work with this guy named Phil and he's working for the Wright Brothers right now so I talk to him every couple of days tell me what what you have abundance that chefs don't want to use we'll, we'll try to buy it off you I'm a small restaurant so the discipline is there but then sometimes when you have too much of this how do you use the waste fast quick enough to it doesn't cost you any more money or like sometimes cherries all right so we have bought bought all our cherries and then when you pick the cherries the stems don't throw it away dry it out you can make tea out of it so we bought about 100 kilos of cherries in the last uh, six weeks ago before the cherry scene came out came away like basically the last bit of season so we picked it all up and we used our leftover red wine and a little bit of vinegar. So we're going to make cherry mustard when it comes in December. So we ferment the cherries. Some we have dehydrated cherries. When you dehydrate cherries, you can make it last longer. It tastes different too. So you can have cherries in a December menu. We're not buying somewhere from another country has been using hydroponics to do it. It's a very tricky subject in a way that you just got me thinking about a restaurant in Lake District. They never use lemons or limes because you think about it. You can't buy citrus fruits in the UK you buy the citrus fruit from Europe you support that but then what they do is they make their own vinegars for the acidity you know so like you know like I'm talking about wasting that but I wish I can do that more because I love lemons I love using limes it is very Asian thing Middle Eastern thing so I try to buy closely with Italy as much as I can and then I preserve it as long as I can so you know like sometimes I feel that I'm not doing the right thing too that I should really be strict about it and like not use lemon not use limes not even buy fish because after watching that documentary sea spursy in netflix it kind of hurt me because i knew that's happening i knew what's going on and i knew the message wasn't that clear after watching the the documentary because he's trying to say don't eat fish like you know like i can do it so much but then when i close my eyes and see what's going on in the rest of the world the abundance we eat and we don't care, it's shocking. And one of the things I want to say to home cooks, like during the pandemic, we bought a lot of things, abundance we, we were so scared of buying and like, we you know, we were running out. But best before, what is really best before, guys? So like,
1: after you said this is my next like,
0: question. It's so important, like, I want to teach people that sometimes best before, it just gives you a rough idea telling you the day they're making, this is the rough day, you should start checking and tasting it. That is not off. It's gonna go off in that day, but it's got time to you know to eat before you really throw it away, guys. You know, you know, you buy a whole fillet of salmon, and then a lot of home cooks don't have the knowledge that you have the belly on the side you're cutting the belly and you throw in the bin we cut the belly and we freeze it and we have it once we start collecting more belly we refreeze it or so sort of defrost it and basically make a tartar dish out of it you know or you can do what the some of the Scandinavian chefs are doing uh, putting the barley Koji or the rice Koji with the trimmings of the of the fish and making garum so garum is a sauce, a fish sauce, a, your own soy sauce. You, you read history. Garums used to be the old Italian way, how they fermented sprats and little sardines with salt and thyme. You got your own fish sauce. You know what I mean? But like trout, salmon tartare is like when the belly is the most delicious part. I went to.
1: That might scare some people though. How it, to make a salmon tartare. I say. All it, it all is is, is, is,
0: diced, is diced meat, Sarah. It's just diced fish and and like I said, a little bit of lemon always helps acidity, vinegar and that kind of stuff. You know. Yesterday I went to Fellow, and I had a a cod head. Wow. All right. And you really think about it. Like, my family, like, been fish head curry and Indian cooking is awesome. We, you know, the cheeks of the fish is so beautiful and tasty. The jaw, the jowl, it's all omega-3 fat, so it's good fat, you know what I mean? It's nothing wrong with eating fish skin, because it's good for you, you know, it makes your skin glow and all that kind. It makes you feel good, that's what I feel like. But I had this dish last night, and I've put on cod head before when I first opened, and I'm going to lie to you, when I first started it, my fishmongers were giving me the collars and the heads for free, And I'm like, you serious? I'm making money out of this and you're giving them free. I said, why? Because no one buys it. No one asks us for it. When people are asking for fillet fish, head goes in the bin, collar goes in the bin, all right? In the last few years, because the subject has been so strong about it, we are open-minded now, I think, but we got to get more consumers to understand, like, it's nothing wrong to eat parts of that fish, eat more offal. If you're going to be a meat eater, why are you not eating the tongue or the tail or, the, or even the testicles? Like what Turkish cooking is doing? And it's nice, like sweetbreads. If you like sweetbreads, it's going to be like that. You know, like how far can you go? But I think it's up to us guys to talk about it and really like preach about it and do it what I do in my restaurant. But my job is to teach consumers how to use it. But there's still a lot of people out there are really scared about it. And I believe that when I got brought up, my mother used to feed us all the parts that you didn't want to eat. Um, you watch my mom eat a chicken wing. My God, she would suck every single part of it. You know what I mean? Like, destroyed the whole wing. And then why not? Why are we? Why, what's wrong with that tip? Why are we throwing it out? It's got to be that crispiness fat, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a new restaurant open in Soho called Humbug Chicken. It's a Japanese concept where you use all the parts of the chicken, the gizzards, wow. the hearts. The feet, you know, but you put it in skewers like yakitori style, you know, like what's on with the heart? What's on with the gizzards? I know it has a metallic taste to it, but then it's up to you as a home cook. A little bit of French mustard, Dijon, rosemary, touch of red wine. Boom. It's a great dish right? and all that metallic off yucky flavor is gone. Mm-hmm. Don't tell your friends you're eating liver or hearts and they'll eat it and then realize that, wow, that tastes so good. So my dad is one of the... Uh, so you're going to trick your dad. I've
1: never mentioned yeah. this in the podcast. My dad. So I was into photography when I was younger. Yeah. And I still am into photography, but I have ended up being on the other side of the lens yeah, yeah. when I was younger. But that's what I started studying. And I remember I had to photograph this this heart. And I went to the butcher and I said yeah. to them, can I get a heart? I can't remember if it was a pig's heart or whatever it was. Well,
0: just to take a
1: photo. Yeah, I had to take this picture. And then my dad was like, we're not wasting that. And then he boiled it up. Yeah. And I don't know what he put it in it or whatever. And he ate it. And I just remember thinking... Wow, there is literally no food waste here yeah, allowed. But yeah, he loved it, and he yeah. eats all the kidneys and the liver. I mean, yeah. I don't eat meat, so, so, so it's y- a different...
0: you talk to your friend's family, they got surrounded with that because it was hard times in the 50s, 60s, yeah. you know, like you know, especially in Europe with war and that. My mother would say grandma used to come home with one chicken and it was definitely a treat to feed 11 kids and that one chicken half a chicken would be one day and another half would be the next day so what she would do she'll go down and buy all the cheap carrots all the turnips and all the broccoli broccolis, okay, and then get them to cut it and then sun-dry it. So dehydrate your vegetables, and that's what we do here. We buy all these vegetables, we dehydrate them, and then we rehydrate it in vinegar water or salted water, and it gives you this perfect jerky-like texture. And then in Asian culture, like we call it achar. It's like a pickle paste. So in different parts of Asia, from Malaysia to Singapore to India, they have this achar paste. That, so you dehydrate all these root vegetables, and then we rehydrated it, and then you add this paste, and then you just make your own pickle at home. So that's what grandma used to feed my mother and all that. And then you know, then he came to us when, when grandma got older, she wasn't fit enough, but she made us to do that concept. One chicken will last us for a couple of days, you know. Mm-hmm. But then when I was started cooking, I think we started taking things from granted. We forgot all that history. You know, like, I remember growing up was all like processed foods, you know, a lot. Of, and you didn't even tell you it was good or bad. Like, I remember one time mom came in and she's like, all right, we're going to stop eating coconut curries. I'm like, why? Because it's fattening. So she started putting yogurt, but then it was the knowledge that someone gave her was bad for it. And then she realized that coconut milk, what we were using, was nothing wrong, was actually not the fattening part. You mm-hmm. see what I mean? Like, that knowledge went upside down in one stage. When I was cooking... When we came to vegetarian dishes, your options are only a risotto, a tart, a pasta dish or mixed leaf salad. You see what's happened now, like, I wish I had the knowledge when I was that young chef to teach my fellow friends and family that, yes, we can do that, yes, we can do that. But in our Asian cooking, we use everything too. Broccoli stems, cauliflower leaves. It's a yummy pie, guys. It's so nutty. It's my
1: cauliflower leaves. Really yeah, clear. yeah. It's paprika and olive oil. Exactly.
0: Well. Nothing wrong. That You never thought, the only thing you throw in the cauliflower is just the little hard part in the bottom. And I wish I can slice it and thin it. I tried it. Trust me, you can't. <laughs> I've tried it. I've sold it for weeks and it still doesn't work, okay? You know, so it's so much, like every day I'm still learning. So right now it's pumpkin season. I started talking to my sous chef. I'm like... You know, like pumpkin seeds are so cheap, but is pumpkin seed from a plant or is actually from the seed from the pumpkin? You Google that, it's actually the pumpkin seeds inside. So there must be somewhere in the world is they have this, like, factory and just, like, churning, like, pumpkin for the pumpkin puree in the cans for the, for the American, you know, pumpkin puree pie and that. Mm. And then what else they're doing with the pumpkin? Baby food, soups. You know, and then all that seeds, thank God they're not throwing in the bin, they're actually recycling and we're using pumpkin seeds. And pumpkin seeds, instead of using nuts, because nuts are so expensive, use more seeds in your cooking for texture, sunflower seeds, you know, pumpkin seeds, and all that kind of stuff, you know, so...
1: I did a video yesterday for just kind of my content, and literally, that's exactly what I did, was doing the pumpkin seeds and using them for the texture. I find it so important to add that crunch and that dimension into when you're cooking to make it different.
0: I started thinking that, you know, if you've got an average blender at home, you can roast your pumpkin seeds, take it out while it's still hot, because when you're blending when it's still hot, you bring out the oils, all right? And when you're blending slow streams of water, and I think you can make a pumpkin seed butter doing that technique. But then the next level is you sprinkle a little bit of vinegar, tahini, or you go to the Middle Eastern shop, get ala chili ufa chili so it gives that little smokiness and a little spiciness and then you can use that to spray on your toes, you can make it to make soup, make cakes, you know what I mean? So you make like a pumpkin seed dressing. You gotta understand like it sounds easy for me but it took me a few goes to get it right too so don't like even being a professional, yeah don't be scared like you know sometimes I do things and I'm like oh my god what (laughs) I've done you know like and then you gotta learn how to rectify the problem and that's the fun part about doing what we do you know? Mm -hmm. Rectifying the problem, what we can do to really fix one of the things I always say, pastry is always hard. Like, when, you read, when you're when looking at a recipe and pastry, there's no shortcuts. Like, pastry is one of the things, you read the recipe, you start from time management, from one to two, and then you get your perfect cake. There's no way of really cheating it, you know? But when it comes to savoury cooking, that's when you get your hands and you really play with it as you go, yeah.
1: The best thing is don't be afraid to make mistakes, because actually that's when the best results I feel sometimes yeah. come through. And exactly. I imagine that is the exactly. same with you as well. Exactly. And, you know, I could talk about food waste forever, but I really do want to talk to you around mental health at the same time. Because, I mean, for many people that maybe have never worked in a kitchen before, or don't have friends who are chefs, Mm. or, you know, it's a very strained industry for mental health with chefs. A new report, I don't know if you've heard about this, it was commissioned this year by the Nestle Professional, called At Boiling Point.
0: All right. Nestle, Nestle the brand? Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. they commissioned it. They addressed mental well-being in professional kitchens yeah. and they found that four in five chefs, so that's a, that's a huge statistic, yeah, it's a, it's a, have uh, suffered from poor mental yeah, health.
0: Burnout, burn
1: days. It really is. And a survey of UK chefs has found that 81% have experienced poor mental health during their careers and that nearly half believe that not enough is being done to support mental health in yeah. the workplace. So, I mean, before we even started this podcast, you said to me, I actually Googled mental yeah, health did. awareness uh, you know so,
0: so when you approach me to talk about mental awareness and I'm still nervous talking about it because when I googled it the reason I googled it because I didn't really know what mental awareness really means and when I googled it I just started seeing this list of things that I think definitely I've gone through it I tell you that all my friends and the people I've socialized all my life my family have all gone through mental awareness so I every couple of weeks, I, call your mother you should call your mother every week by the way guys <laughs> I try to do my Thanks. best of being a good son so I talked to mom and there's always food conversation but I told her that I'm doing a, a podcast about mental awareness and she was really stoked about it but she said as a nurse I've studied mental awareness and I just said to mom I'm like you know everything that I saw on those lines or the points that we all have gone through it but all I have to say that I've been blessed in a way that I come from a strong personality on my mother's side that we're hard workers, we're grinders, we take stress really well. And I think all the years, what I've achieved with stress is making me stronger. Like I'll give you an example, like when I first started cooking as a young chef, like definitely bullying is around. I'm a big guy. So like some of the small head chefs, they were all scared and then they went, I saw them do it to other people, but I think they looked at me a bit scary because I was a big, this big guy, looked like a Kiwi kind of big Murray dude. So they didn't want to push me that far. But they pushed me that far in the way that I looked at it as I went home. I didn't break down, but I looked at it and I'm like, this is what I really want to do. This is my career. This is what I want to do. I want to be the best chef. I want to cook good food. But this guy is pulling me down. This guy is making me feel that I can't do it. Then I really looked at it. It's only cooking, Scully. It's only this is what I love to do and what he's trying to say to me, like, Am I slow? Am I really don't get this? So the next day I come back guns blazing, I'm going to be faster than him. I'm going to be more disciplined than him. And then I start learning that he's teaching people the wrong way. So when I come a head chef, I want to go a different direction to people when we teach, you know, like give them the knowledge, make them excited that cooking is a passion, it's artistic, it has values that if you really think what good food does to people, great dinner parties, great food brings people together, great conversations. You add alcohol, it's even funner, you know? And so, and then I really thought, you know, this is my life right now, but I've suffered all these problems, you know, like, and I look at it from this day and I'm still suffering from these problems. I'm exhausted today, but I'm high in life because people like you, Sarah, kind of just make me feel that, you know, like, Life is so important that like we got to use every single minute of it, and then in how we give back to people. You know, like I think, like I want to inspire many young kids to cook more and more. But when you're young, you are you know, like I remember when you're young. I wish I listened to my mother so many times. Save money, save money. I spent every single cent that I that I. <laughs> but I had a great life in spending it. But I wish I didn't because I wish I kept some of it and maybe I have a little bit more values in my piggy bank right now. But um. <laughs> I think when you're young, too, you know, you're so, you know, naive, but I think sometimes you have to stop and listen to that people telling you something like you, you got to listen to them. Like I said before, like I, when I looked at list, I said "Mom, mum that look at my like, no offense to my sis, my dad's personality, they're very worrying people, even though they're really good in their careers, they worry a lot, they dwell on it so much. And I believe in star signs, I'm a liberal, so sometimes when I have problems, I dwell on it, but I always have the pro and con. In my head, I'm thinking balance and then it takes some time before I pick the right decision. But sometimes you make the wrong decision, but how do you overcome that wrong decision too? Because when the shit goes down in the kitchen and you're running, if you have five people cooking and you've got a hundred cover kitchen, one goes down, instead of yelling that person, just jump in and help. Because if you jump in and help, that train keeps going. And that's the whole thing about service in a restaurant. High pace, it's heat, and one has got testosterone levels going high. But how do you make it like a uniform team, a living couple? You know, like by coming in every day, hi, chef, how are you doing? Having good conversations. All of us have different backgrounds. Talk about our mothers and their fathers, what they've been cooking. And that four hours before service comes gives that cherry part. But the hour before service, instead of like most restaurants I work in high levels, you know, you got two or three chefs on top, of you yelling at you what? you're not ready. And I'm like, instead of yelling at me, why you just jump in and help me, you know what I mean? Like, it's a teamwork. There's no I in the team, you know. And I think when I work, a lot of hotshot chefs are not putting names. They were too busy selling the restaurant, which is fine. But you got the team behind you that makes you look good. So even though my name is in the front door of Scully Restaurant... I work as hard as my team, I even give more sometimes but then what I'm trying to say when I come to work I give a lot but in return they give me pride and joy to be here you know, like, my mom always gave that scenario like, son, you're not happy in the workplace and you have a great relationship, you're gonna come home and bring that bad vibe to your relationship if you have a great work relationship, you come home and you have a bad rela- you're gonna bring that love back, and it's so true, like, if you ever have a bad day, you come home to your party, and you're like you know, because you have to unleash it out yeah. so how do you learn to overcome that and, you know, I'm a tired person, I like to build it up, so I don't, there's so much I would say and then you gotta learn how to direct your problems with your staff, and what i experienced was a lot in your face they didn't want to listen to you why was the problem or they're doing it in front of people that's wrong i think when you work in the environment you've got something to say you should pull your member and aside and have the one-on-one i've experienced that because when i worked for atelangi in all the years i worked for him him as a mentor and as a friend of mine he taught me how to just delegate people a little bit more take criticism because i think a lot of young chefs don't like Saying that it's a bit salty, or it's not cooked properly, or it doesn't taste right. Some young chefs like they go, you know, like don't cry about it. Like take the criticism, because even as a restaurateur, when you look at bad reviews, yeah, you can say it's the customer's fault, but sometimes they're actually making a damn good point. Like, but it hurts. It really hurts, you know. Like, but you got to learn that, learn that from that mistakes. Mm. I feel that in all my life, that every big person that I met in my life gave me something, and I think. Like, even as a young teenager, when I started cooking, I had this a female friend who was the same age as me. She gave me the confidence to talk to people, talk to girls. I had this guy named Robert. He was five years old than me, but he taught me how to enjoy life, but work cool. When I was in my 20s, I met this ex-Navy guy, who was my head chef, named Blaine Tripp. And he taught me the fun part of cooking, that you can be really, like, organised, but open your mind and but still have fun on the other side, you know? Like, these two sides of your workplace that you should see. Then, you know, as time goes. So now I think my job, like, I feel like I am part teaching, you know? I said to myself, if I don't make it in the restaurant world, I think I'm going to be a school teacher and teach people how to cook. You know, I think it's so important because when I was cooking, all those French, English chefs that taught me how to cook, they didn't want to share that knowledge. I really had to dig it out, or you just look at, you copy from them. You know, yeah. they didn't want to share their knowledge. I think now it's important to share knowledge, and so, yeah, so. because if you don't share it, you're dying with your knowledge to the grave. Why? Why? What the fuck? The whole thing about being as humans is to share that. You know, because the next generation will take it to the next level. You know so now you see what's going on about you know let's go back to the little bit about waste and how these all these countries are trying to reduce pollution or that and then I think some people that you talk to about it, they're always thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about, I don't have kids, but I want the next generation of my friends' kids to enjoy what I did. My mother always said, you never enjoy the tomato as I did. You know, like back in the days, the tomatoes was more juicy. And I'm like, no, mom, you should try the tomatoes now, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I just think like, like for me, mental awareness, I've been blessed in the way that when I read that list on Google and I looked at it.
1: What was in the list?
0: Well, one of the things is, is the weight problem. You know, like people, look, when I was growing up in Australia, I felt people were more like, if you had a weight problem or you look a bit fat or you didn't look good in clothes, people were a bit more like, how do I say it? Um, Judgment. Yeah, very judgy. And I used to be that, I used to be scared of what I wear sometimes. But then what happened was I left Australia and I. I learned how to be alone. I learned how to meet new people. So during that time, I went to Hong Kong. I traveled to Asia with my French friend. Then I went to live in France for three months and did nothing and eat a lot of great cheeses and food and drank a lot of beer, but met great people. I'd never been in a country that I didn't understand a language. You know what I mean? It was my first time game, you know? like. But what changed me on those years, was like, think living in Russia, that I had to train Russian chefs. All right. So I came out from working in tough kitchens when everyone was yelling. When I worked for Yotam, I calmed down like I took that a little bit, too. So that's why Yotam had to calm me down and say, look, man, like I don't want my own business to have crazy guys like you telling what." Yes, I love your cooking, but you're going to get fired if you keep doing it. So you kind of woke me up, you know, like instead of yelling, just approach it in a different way. You know, so I just feel that whatever you teach the young generation now. They will follow you, so you that thing yelling and burning chefs—it's cool. It's not, but if you teach them the proper way, they all should follow your your instructions. Is how your parents teach you, you know. But when it comes to parents, you're always arrogant in front of them, you know. But when it comes to a different, like adult teaching you too, I take it better in that way than most young kids with their parents. So I look at it that your time taught me that, and then when I got to Russia, I had to teach Russian chefs, and I know in Moscow, like when it comes to foreigners they're not a big fan of that you know so the new generation that love foreigners to come and teach you but it's how you approach it so in the second year i took one of my french friends and i knew he used to be my susha, but he was very very hot tempered dude you know you knew that personality and this is what traveling is all about because when you meet different parts of the world you notice that their culture makes them that that personality, that hot-tempered blurt, you know, like, no friends with the French, but I've worked with a lot of Frenchies, man, like, you know, they're really arrogant sometimes. And and you go, why, why are you not so like that? So that's why I say being open-minded is so important, you know, to go forward about mental awareness too. And I warn you, I said, look, I'm getting you a job there, it's good money, but the Russians work differently. You can't walk in and teach his Russian chefs by using the F word or swearing at them. You got to teach them slowly, come their friends you know, like bring them to come to you and they will be, you know. So when I started in the mosque at six months, I just kept my mouth shut. I just watched them work. I directed them if I saw a problem. If I saw any major problem, instead of yelling at it, I went to the CEO, I said, we've got to solve this problem. They're cutting raw chicken on, on a cooked chicken board, but he doesn't want to listen to me, but you need to help me find a chef that can stand next to me and direct them too, because they're looking at me, look at this foreigner. I don't understand what he's talking. So approach it different. And by the end of the two years, I formed, like, a group of chefs. Their English got better. They love cooking better, you know, like, because in in Russia, they don't pay much money. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, there'll be, like, ten chefs that I know living in, in a two-bedroom apartment. So it's a hard life, you know, like.
1: It's not hard with mental
0: health. Yeah, this does not help. So, but if you give them a fun environment when they come to work to go, a hey, chef, like, you know, like, they walk out with a smile and they come back better with a smile, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is how I approach things now, like, you know, like, if you walk in all angry, you're going to bring that to the vibe of your, of your team. So I try to come to work every day, smiley, bright. I have problems. Everyone has problems. Everyone's got issues. Right? I, got, I got money issues. I got, you know, like, but in a day, my mother always taught me, you've got a roof under your head. You've got somewhere to go to sleep. There's people out there have nothing, like truly Nothing. And that's why sometimes when the young chefs, they always ask me for more money, I'm like, you earn pretty good money in your age, but you haven't proved to me the next level to go on top. Like cooking, there's so many opportunities to go next level, next level. So you start off as an apprentice, a commie chef, a demi chef, then a chef de parti, a sous, That's cool names, right? Like chef de party, sous, junior sous, head chef. And I think a lot of young chefs watch these master chef shows and they want to jump so far. I think like that saying, you know, when you're young, people want, want to be adults. We all, we all wanted to be adults when we were young kids. And then when we realize when you got adults, we want to go back to being a young kid. You know what I mean? I think like, you know, like take your time, like you build your career, you build in stepping stones. You work at the right places. If you're not happy, it's because your boss or that environment, then change that environment. Don't like get that environment swally in because... Years ago, I remember when we did the Nope cookbook launch, we went to Canada and Toronto and we did this massive talk to a school. And this school, there was like a college basically for, for chefs. They had a thousand college students there. And one lady pointed up and directed a question to me in your time and said, I'm finishing my course this year. I've done two years. I really want to be a chef, but I don't know what direction to be a chef. And your time looked at me, this is your question. I'm like, why well, why me? You know, like so I understand what she was trying to say. I think like she wanted to be a good chef, but you don't have to be a good chef to work in a crazy restaurant. I break it down that you can work in hotel. A hotel's got different rules, but they have a HR department. But you learn different style cooking. You're doing cheese plates, Caesar salad. You're learning the fundamentals of cooking, because a hotel caters for every type of people. So you want, you need to have a burger. Then you got the fine dining part too. So what I was trying to tell her, like, you work in a hotel to a cafe. You're doing fast food to great sandwiches. You can be a catering person nine to five. You can work on a ship and work with tons of, like, ingredients, but that's when it scares me about waste because you start seeing, like, I've just cooked about 10 tons of salmon in three months. That's a lot of fish, you know, from one world, so that kind of scares you too. And then, then you want to hear that you want to be Federal or bully, El Bully or Noma. This is the hard one. This is the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, that old-school cooking that makes young people scared to jump in. I've met a lot of great people, that can be working fine dining restaurants, but the problem is the head chef was too harsh. It was just too much yelling, too much abusing. If he and she approached it a different way, I can imagine that you can have one team for the whole year, we're not changing. I work in top kitchens, and I've seen 20, 30 chefs come and go in one year. Like, every week would be a different dude, or there'll be another chef come in and then say, I'm going to the toilet, mm. and never come back. Mm. What does that tell you as an owner, as a boss, that you're crucifying you're not teaching the right way a good teacher like at school like the reason I did well because I had good teachers that pulled me aside they saw me that I was struggling to solve the problem you know how can you teach them like I always get them too. like when some of the chefs they, they give you this slop and you go come here man will you say that to your own family no so then don't do it to yourself don't, you know like really think before you serve something because when it comes to food pumps are paying customers one bite there's no turning back you know yeah. that one bite is so important that first bite that turns you on you know that that makes you smile that looks at your friend and go wow man my brain is like sparkling with flavours you know so I want to
1: quickly bring it back just because yeah. the mental health is so important to yeah. kind of home in you said that when you left Australia and then you got that confidence yeah. You know what would you say? Because so many people I know don't talk much about mental health in the sense when it comes to men. Yeah. Maybe when it comes to chefs. Yeah. But coming from modelling industry also is a different dimension. But you know body shaming is yeah. It's a tough. And it's and it's the same with like the younger generation generally, and even in adults. You know we all have our insecurities. We all suffer with mental health doesn't mean we have to have a mental health illness we have a brain it's one of the biggest organs Mm. it's made of 60 percent fat Mm. you know it needs nourishing and we go to the gym to keep our muscles in tone to keep our aesthetic in shape but we don't think about our brain that also needs that and it's a huge conversation and you've got to feed your brain with knowledge knowledge, but you've got to take care of it and you've got to be not frightened to have these conversations and it's the thing that I feel that we're starting to, but only in certain demographics, is to talk about mental health. Yeah. We're still There is still a stigma, even though a lot of times we see a lot about it in the press or we hear certain people talking about it, there is still a massive stigma to kind of Bring up about yeah. maybe I am feeling anxious at work today, maybe I am overworked, maybe I'm really stressed, maybe all of these dimensions are affecting how I'm feeling. Mm. I don't have confidence to perform that yes. day, I don't want to wear yeah, that. Yeah. Like, how have you managed to build a resilience? And after that resilience, like I, that's the first question I want to ask you, but I want to follow that with we should always have to have this strong resilience, we should be able to feel vulnerable at mm-hmm. certain times and actually check in with ourselves and that vulnerability and that to me is something that's really important for all of my listeners on this podcast to engage in and to share
0: i'll give you an example like you know when you're going for a job interview or job trial even having this meeting with you today i was scared i'm nervous fear factor i think it's very important to have fear like next week i'm doing bbc3 a new show a food competition i'm fucking scared shitless i can tell you that but every time i had a little bit of fear and i walked in the line of fire and it comes naturally like that fear helps you you got to have fear and if you're not going to have fear then you're going to be one of those cocky people like you will never understand that you know like everything we do is scary like even though i talk so confident you got to have fear in your life and then it's up to you as a person how to overcome that fear and that's not easy stepping stones wanting like knowledge all right so if i read a lot so the thing is, I'm not passionate about reading novels and that, but I can read a cookbook from the first page to the end. I know it sounds weird because like, it's recipes and pictures and that, but every page I flip, my mind just, I analyse the recipe from top to bottom because the problem is about, there's a saying too, there's a lot of cookbooks out there, but doesn't mean you can take all the recipes and cook in your own kitchen because every kitchen has a different environment. So that recipe won't work. So you got to think that concept like, knowledge is so important you read it and then you overcome from the your time in different kitchens how i'm going to nail that recipe all right so fear confidence is one of the things for me number three for me like the thing is when i grew up all right i can take this as a sad case but i'm not going to my parents were that kind of people but the first five years i didn 't even know how my mother was because after I was born, she left Malaysia, went straight to London to finish her nursing. I can easily sit down and cry about it. I didn 't know I have a mother figure that I was got brought up by my aunties on my father 's side, basically a very strict Muslim lady. that 's the mongrel breed too. on my father 's side is Muslim blood. I remember every morning at a two, three-year-old get-up, my auntie would feed me aubergine sambal, like cold, yucky aubergine sambal, have cold showers at five o'clock in the morning, learn my ABC one, three. I was crying those mornings, I was sad. And then at five years old, my mother came, I remember one day at the airport, my mom said, you just ran to me like you just, I just knew it was my mother, right? But then look at my sister, in that five years, she suffered because she was a six-year-old kid She knew my mother and then all my mother left, like had to leave to do that for us, you know? But then I look at the big picture that my mom did that because we have a life now. She had to sacrifice for that, all right? So I can just relate that my father wasn't really there. My father wasn't, I never had a father figure in my life. Mm-hmm. My father is not a bad person. Like you can say, yeah, I hate him. No, I don't hate him. My father didn't know how to talk to kids. He didn't know how to talk to me. He was very journalist kind of type, political. So like even talking like that to him now, it takes some time, maybe a few whiskeys or break the ice, I don't know. But you know, I've never had a father figure. So all I'm trying to say is to like mental awareness, right? Some people, I think, you shouldn't give excuses about when something gets too tough. I think I'm talking in the way that I suffer a lot sometimes. In the way that things get tough, but well, I right, pick up a book, read it, knowledge it, ask a friend about it, speak to your loved ones about it, look what's going around around you, have that concept that. My mother always said, you got a roof under the head, you got a bed to sleep, so I'm not that bad. I'm actually in that bubble that I actually have a great life. You know what I mean? Foundation. Yeah, I have that foundation. Then what happens when someone hasn't got all that? That's a different level. I wish I could help them, you know? But, you know, I've seen beggars come on here, and I go, look, man, I'm looking for a porter. I can give you some work if you want. Most of them say no. I'm thinking, I want to do that. Is it that bad Like to say, come and do a job? But then... But kitchen porting is a pretty shit job too, guys. You're cooking, so when I work in my porters, I make sure they're happy in the way that I feed them. They come from, like, really poor backgrounds, so end of the shift, I pack them some leftover food. Instead of, like, giving to the chefs or throwing in the bin, I pack it away and I go, man, leftovers is the best thing, like, in, in my culture. Fuck, leftovers is the best thing. Curries, meat pies, all that kind of stuff. So I look at them too, like, they're so unfortunate in life, so... I want to give them more. I don't have money, but I can give them love. You mm. know that brotherhood. You know, like even when it comes to the ladies too. Like, it's just like my like Carol. She will come to work some and But just speaking for 10, 20 minutes to you, like having a conversation is so important. It is so yeah. Important. It, and it's a collective. Yeah. About
1: the It's a collective and community, and so much of what you've yeah. spoken about with mental health awareness, just yeah. mental health is you kept referencing people you love It yeah. throughout your life. And yeah. that is a massive cause. Yeah,
0: I go stronger from those people. They don't even realise it, but it makes me scully. It makes me who I am because I bounce from you if I'm in conversation, you know, I like people I meet, you know. Like, I can see this is not the last or the first time you're going to talk. We're going to have other conversations in life, mm-hmm. you know. But we grow from each other too. Like, you know, you teach me something a little bit and I'll teach you. But that's life's all about. Like, mm-hmm. every single minute... Like, when you wake up, you see like, I need my hot shower. So if I don't have my hot shower, I'm the most grumpy person in the world. But I've been blessed that I can afford a place with hot showers. Some people get up, they don't have water, you know, things like that. Like, how hard life was that? And like, I follow some people on social media, The Rock, all right? You know, when I watched him, he was a great wrestler. But if you watch The Rock, and you know the reason he's so toned and built, because he put so many hours in that hardcore workout. I wish I can have that motivation and that mind. I, I have moments when I do go to gym, then I stop. And I, but I know I can be that kind of body if I want to. But I'm happy as I am already. But The Rock always say, when the time goes tough and I'm tired, and all these things are happening. Just I remember I used to only have seven dollars in my pocket to survive for the next day, or then I only had 50p or something. And then even as a chef, like, like the worst thing about being a chef, like, you this is a type of profession and that you don't do it to become a millionaire. I think the thing about being a chef, it pays you just enough to have a great life, to pay your bills, pay your taxes, but enough money to go hang out and that. But it's the passion about the job that there's never a dull moment in what we do for a living. Like, you should have that kind of... Like, I feel like sometimes I know some of my friends who are 9 to 5, they are off their jobs. They only can move up to a certain level, and they come... And I meet people because they come and do work experience, and I ask them, why are you doing work experience? Because I want to change my career. And you shouldn't go, ha-ha. No, nah, nah. you should encourage them because... It is scary that you're gonna leave your full-time job after ten years and off and then gonna jump in the kitchen. And if you listen to those kind of people, you're never gonna go to that next level. Fuck man, fear is one of the greatest things in life. You gotta have fucking fear like to make you tough. Then some people are just blessed with no fear, you know, like drilling rush people. No,
1: not, <laughs> Everyone has fear and I yeah. always say when people bring up fear, which is yeah. a really interesting concept, it's a very similar emotion to yeah. excitement. So when you right? think about it, yeah, yeah, when you think about it, you get, like, that sweaty palms and yeah. the butterflies with yeah. excitement, and you get that with fear. Yeah. And there's a very fine balancing line between these two emotions. Yeah. So, you know, it's just about kind of reconstructing that mindset. as <laughs> What I always yeah. try to say to people yeah. is, you know, if you are fearful,
0: yeah.
1: what's the worst that happened? happen? And think about when you're really scared as well yeah. or excited. They're exactly. very similar emotions, the it sweaty is. palms, it the is. fast heartbeat, the butterflies in the stomach. So, like, the reframing part is a big thing, and I can tell that that's coming through in a lot of what you're saying with mental health. And, you know, I think the really kind of big take-home from everything you've said is, like, your community and resilience that you've built and building confidence Mm. and actually allowing yourself to not be scared, yeah. to try that next level, yeah. and just to rethink situations, yeah. you know, as you've rethought things in the kitchen yeah. or wanting to jump in and help someone yeah. else out, you know. Actually, helping someone else out does a lot for our mental health. Yeah, is, yeah. And a lot of people don't always think about that, but actually being kind to a stranger on the street yes. or saying hello to the person in a coffee yeah. shop yeah. or doing a kind deed for someone yeah. actually benefits you yeah, as you well. That you,
0: you just said by being co- saying being kind to in the coffee shop, My flatmate Romero, I could be in the zone thinking about I'm tired. I'm I'm thinking about food, and then like you know, he gets on the bus to be like, "How you doing, sir?" and then. You see the bus driver, he goes, thank you. You know, that little, little thing. So I, and then we get off the bus, I and mean, then 95%, now I do it with him too. See man. Like, you know, and this is our local bus stop. You know, we didn't realize that it's the same damn bus driver. But you can see, like, I just made his day by five seconds. You know, that little, like, hello, sir. How you doing? Thanks a lot. Bye. You know, that it's appreciation, yeah. you know. And then... It like, I'm a type of person, like, you know, people come up, when I come upstairs and they're middle eating, oh, thanks for the great food. But I always say, no, thank you, but it's my team that makes that food for me, that makes me look good. Yes, it's my idea, my conception, but it's my teaching that make me proud They're producing what I want, you know? And that's a lot of chefs do wrong because they have all these crazy fucking ideas 25 ingredients in one plate but they're not thinking he and she cannot produce it in time if you don't have a team effort working to produce that 25 components on a dish when i mean 25 components means you have to do move 25 times to make one dish people don't get that and if you think it's like a great orchestra you know Mm. What to start and what to finish and how he finishes with a big bang, you know?
1: it's it, honestly it's so important. We're social creatures and that is also one essence. Yeah. So I want to I, I could talk to you about this all day, yeah. honestly. But I'm gonna give you like three or four quick fire questions and yeah, then right. end on what I ask every single person if that's alright with you. What do
0: you mean, like give me an example
1: like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go straight <laughs> in. <laughs> well, i gonna have, to have a one with You've answer. You've gotta have confidence. I've gotta have one with answer. Yeah.
0: Shit, value giving okay. <laughs>
1: Right, here we go. I've got to twist the mic every time we do this. So hopefully yeah, it doesn't come disconnected. It. Right. Favourite ingredient?
0: Uh, fuck it. Uh, miso. <laughs> miso paste.
1: Go-to dish when at home?
0: Two-minute noodles. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Eating in or eating out?
0: In and eating out. doesn't matter. Depends on the, on the person. Depends where I it's am. Yours. I like eating out, you know.
1: Okay. Music on or music off when cooking?
0: Music on, but sometimes when you're cooking in big kitchens, music off.
1: Cooking alone or cooking with people?
0: You see where we are now in the dungeon. There's a reason why I built this restaurant. I like to cook alone and I have a great team that leaves me to be alone so I can create my dishes. I I need my mind to, you know. But, like, it's always nice to have someone next to you so you can tell your your ideas.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay. And lastly, what does live well, be well mean to you, Scully?
0: Uh, Look, I wish I could say it in the way that, you know, it's about having a healthy lifestyle in the way, but I can tell you, I don't have a healthy lifestyle, but I know when I wake up every morning, I'm happy. The pressure that I have keeps me going. So I have a purpose when I wake up and that helps me. So, what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm not a healthy person because I don't eat the right foods. I don't go to gym much. But inside my own thoughts, I'm just a happy guy. I'm just, I'm happy to live the moment. I'm happy to meet people like you, Sarah. I'm happy to get up tomorrow morning that I have to cook for 100 people. I mean, shit, because I have to make this sauce. So i got to do this. That's why I'm happy. That's why there's a purpose so that I get up every morning because what I do affects a lot of other people. So I want to make sure that other people get the same feeling how I'm feeling, being happy, being good
1: such a nice answer <laughs> what thank a great you. way to end the podcast yeah, thank you oh, Scully thank you so you much for coming on
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll be around in the next season with yeah. Scully part two yeah, definitely
0: definitely. that was really cool and I, um, yeah I want to say a lot more about wish people understand where I come from that You know, you don't have to be what you see in social media, like get up every morning, go to do yoga, go do gym, eat fucking matcha teas, all that shit. No, you don't. You don't need to do all that to be a, a great, healthy person. I think there's other ways to be cool and healthy, but you don't have to follow those steps. I think you need to find your own way and work with people like you. And just, and because I learned mistakes too from having a talk to you, you know what I mean? So thank you for the whole experience. I hope it helps other people, you know, it really yeah, does. It well. yeah.
1: really will. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. And thank you, Scully, for bringing so much inspiration to today's podcast episode. If you haven't yet, please do head to the Be Well Collective's website to book your tickets to our Christmas finale to finish the season on Wednesday, the 8th of October, which will be held in London in the evening. We can't wait to see you there. So book your tickets because they are selling fast.